Hello and welcome back to series two of So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill, an environmental filmmaker and now a writer too. And I'm Sam Lee. I'm a folk singer. I'm a song collector, nature lover and writer. Together, we're going to be talking all about the climate and nature crises. And about how we can communicate them. Our mission is to energise and inspire you, our audience. So we can all, in some form, help prevent this wonderful planet of ours from becoming unlivable. This series is sponsored by One Earth, a philanthropic organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 C. Through three key transitions, shift to 100% renewable energy, protection and restoration of nature, and regenerative agriculture. This, this is So Hot Right, right now. now. Welcome to episode five. So Tom, who's our guest for this week? Oh, uh, this is a real good one, Sam. Separa Berman. Separa Berman is an exceptional human. She is the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and has a long record of leading and winning major environmental campaigns and policy victories. She now is focused on curtailing the global oil and gas supply. But previously, she was the creator and lead negotiator of something that Sam actually knows and has personal experience of. Well, yeah, she was the lead negotiator of the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement. And it kind of started her career off in many ways, which was such an inspiring aspect of this conversation is seeing what was the making of a young woman turning into a climate activist, now a very prominent one who's very involved in the COP climate talks. But it started off with her being a defender, quite inadvertently, of the Cloquat Sound anti-felling of the Great Cedar Boreal Rainforests that was a community uprising against the clear-cut plan that she ended up taking up the microphone, not by choice, but just by default, that was really her entry into what is now, you know, a lifetime's work of planet defence. And you've been to this rainforest. I have, indeed. Can you describe what it's like? Well, it's enormous. And we're talking about red and yellow cedars that are towering thousands of feet. Temperate rainforest, wet, full of grizzly bears and beavers and salmon running up these rivers. It's epic landscape. It's also one of the most ancient. The trees are thousands of years old. And it's an inspiring place that's had a relationship with the indigenous British Columbian, you know, First Nations there, of which she's worked intricately with their communities to help amplify their voice. And Separa didn't stop with the protection of what then became known as the Great Bear Rainforest. She co-founded Stand or Earth, was a co-director of Greenpeace's Global Climate and Energy Programme, and led the creation of the Arctic Campaign and a successful Unfriend Coal campaign to get Facebook, Apple and others to switch from coal to renewable energy for their data centres. And we met Separa in a sort of weird, like, yoga tent on the edge of the blue zone where we pulled her out of the talks and she had an hour and she sank into a deck chair next to us and told us her story. We're in the cop here in Glasgow. It is raining outside. We're in a tent, so that's what this loud like <laughs> drumming is. We're in the fringes, so you've kindly joined us from the blue zone where all the kind of stuff happens. Can you tell us who you are? My name is Sapora Berman, and I'm the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative. 
and also the International Program Director at Stand.Earth. And what does that mean for somebody who's new to all of this? I've been working on designing environmental advocacy campaigns and also advising government on environmental and climate policy now for 30 years. Right now, what I'm doing is proposing a new global treaty to stop the expansion of fossil fuels and to manage who gets to produce what oil, gas, and coal and how much around the world. Because although we have a lot of climate policy and a lot of climate agreements, and they're really complicated, the simple fact is that 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere and blanketing the earth come from three products, oil, gas, and coal. And the Paris Agreement doesn't constrain how much countries or companies produce, just how we try and reduce pollution. So the result is that we're on track to build more and more oil, gas, and coal every day, even though we say we're in a transition out of it. Mm. You're based in British Columbia, which is an amazing interface with some of the finest ecosystems in the world and also close by to some of the biggest fossil fuel extraction projects. So you're sitting in the sort of frontier territory in, yeah. in that sense. Can you describe a little bit what it's like in that part of Canada at the moment? Who are the parties and how they relating to each other? It's a really interesting question because I was drawn to British Columbia as a young student because of the temperate rainforests. We have some of the largest and oldest trees in the world trees that can be up to 300 feet tall, the size of 30-story office towers and a 1,000 years old. And I moved to British Columbia as a young activist because the old growth forests are being logged. And it was there that I fell in love. I fell in love with the ecosystems. I fell in love with the people. It's a really outdoor lifestyle. And it's just so incredibly beautiful. And it's so rare globally. But simultaneously, just on the other side of the Rockies is the single largest industrial project on Earth, the tar sands. And the size and scale is almost unbelievable when you actually go there. It is miles and miles and miles of tar sands mines where they're literally stripping away the boreal forest and moving whole rivers in order to dig for more oil. Open cast, so it's all exposed. Yeah, there's two types of mining. One is open pit mining, and the other is in situ, where they drill down and put uh, heat and chemicals in order to frack the oil out of the earth. So we have both in Canada. And now, also in British Columbia, we have one of the largest areas of fracking for gas and some of the biggest new proposed LNG terminals, liquid natural gas terminals. So while British Columbia is really one of the most beautiful places on Earth. It is being destroyed quite quickly right now. And fossil fuel production, just the production of oil and gas, is now the fastest growing and largest component of Canada's emissions. It's a major part of the economy as well. So there's no doubt a complexity of resistance from people whose livelihoods depend upon oil production. And also those who are on the environmental defense side. How does that opposition sit within communities whose livelihoods depend on fossil fuels? The transition out of fossil fuels is not going to be easy. Mm. And it's especially difficult for those communities where the majority of the jobs right now are in fossil fuel extraction, whether it's in British Columbia or whether it's in coal towns in Virginia or oil drilling in the heart of the Nigeria Delta. But the fact is, if we don't plan for how much we're going to wind down fossil fuel production and when, 
then we'll have an unmanaged decline instead of a managed decline of fossil fuels. And that's why I'm working on the fossil fuel treaty, because if we just allow the markets to decide how and when projects get canceled. Is that what's currently happening? It's exactly what's currently happening. Right. So we're seeing this massive shift of finance, of money, because yeah. of divestment, the success of divestment campaigns, but also a lot of new commitments from banks to start to move towards net zero policies and move away from fossil fuels. And what happens is that fossil fuel projects get canceled because renewables are now cheaper mm -hmm. than fossil fuels and because governments are putting in place policies. Right. Well, when those projects get canceled and governments aren't planning for them, yeah. then all the jobs are lost in a second mm -hmm. and there's no planning for it. We hear a lot of talk about just transition, but unless we actually face the fact that we have to plan for how much we reduce fossil fuel production and mm -hmm. stop making the problem bigger, then more people will suffer. And that's a very useful story for the oil and gas industries in stopping change, isn't it? If you stop using us, all these jobs will go and all these people will suffer. And that's a very handy narrative to be able to keep going and doing what they're doing. Well, and the other handy narrative is that it's all our fault because right. we use fossil fuels. Right. And we've all been hearing that for decades mm -hmm. that, you know, the oil and gas industry, they have to continue to produce because they're feeding demand and people need fossil mm -hmm. fuels. And if you don't like fossil fuels, well, then you yourself should stop using them. Mm -hmm. It makes people feel guilty. It makes people turn away from climate change. But the fact is that if people had options, if we had systems that were cleaner and safer, if we had public transportation systems in cities where it was easy for people to get about, if people had access to yeah. renewable energy, then they would be using it. And so that's why you need government laws and policies to put in place those systems and those options for people. It's not our fault that we use fossil fuels, that we drive a car that still uses gas, especially if you can't afford an electric car. And our cities have been designed for use by cars. So then it's the only convenient way to travel. So your choice is severely inconvenience yourself or don't move or feel really bad about moving while using fossil fuels. Exactly. So for years, the fossil fuel industry has been working to try and make itself invisible to try and make sure that there weren't parallels to other unsafe products, tobacco or other products, that they, it's not their fault, it's our fault for using it. Except that what we now know is that just five of the companies have spent a billion dollars lobbying since the Paris Agreement to weaken climate policies. A billion dollars. How did you find this out? It's an amazing piece of research by a group called Influence Map, where they track how much money companies are spending and who's doing what lobbying and what. So the companies are arguing for subsidies successfully, taxpayers' dollars to keep supporting them, even though renewables are cheaper because they don't want renewable systems to prevail. And then when governments subsidize them, then they have to support that investment. Mm -hmm. In my own country, spends $18 billion a year of taxpayers' money on supporting the oil and gas industry instead of putting that money to electrification or new transportation systems or helping people you know, retrofit their homes mm -hmm. so they use less energy. So in my research, I started looking at, well, are we holding these companies to account for what they're doing? And I discovered that the companies have been spending money on so-called alternative science for mm -hmm. decades to deny climate change. Mm -hmm. And more recently, since they can't deny it because it's happening now, yeah then they're spending a lot of money lobbying the governments in order to weaken climate policy. But then they're simultaneously spending billions on ad campaigns to convince us that they're the good guys, they're trying, but it's our fault because we buy the stuff. So they've switched from saying, 
there is no problem. And then when people say, no, there is a problem, then they go, yeah, yeah, there is a problem, but you're the problem. Consumers, That's right. you're the problem. When I tell people that 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere have come from oil, gas, and coal, they're surprised. They don't know that. Mm. So even people who have lost their homes as a result of the forest fires and are upset about climate change, they're not exactly sure what to ask for, mm -hmm. and they don't exactly know why it's happening. Do they know that their own taxpayer money is contributing to that no, problem? Very few do. Right. Very few mm. do. We're in the COP. This isn't your first rodeo. How did you... <laughs> Like, no. How did you begin your journey in the environmental movement? I think it must be very hard for people to imagine how you get in this room, how you find yourself mm -hmm. in this position, fighting these gigantic vested interests, knowing these things about how they operate. Mm. What was the beginning for you? The beginning for me was seeing an image of the temperate rainforest in a geography class at my university, University of Toronto. And I remember thinking that Brazil had rainforest. I didn't know that my own country, Canada, had rainforest. And the naivete of youth, I bought myself a backpack and a pair of hiking boots and went out to British Columbia to see the rainforest. I didn't know anyone. Mm. And I ended up volunteering for a local environmental group who were trying to raise awareness about how quickly the rainforest was being logged. Mm. And I fell in love with the coast. I fell in love with the rainforest and the people who were yeah. literally putting their bodies on the line in all these small communities to mm. blockade the logging. And I was an academic. I mean, I'd never been to a protest in my life. And so the first year I was there, I was doing research and writing my thesis, and I volunteered to help these brave souls who were blockading the logging on Vancouver Island. And, mm. you know, I, I didn't really know what to do, and so I cooked. <laughs> I cooked in a tent for all the protesters and the scientists. And Most important thing. Yeah. yeah, but then I came back the second year, the second summer, and most of the local community members that I knew had been arrested and had spent a lot of the winter in jail. And once they had signed in a thing saying they wouldn't go back to the region where the logging was happening. Right. And so I all of a sudden was one of the people who had some experience. And I'll never forget, someone handed me a megaphone and said, you know, the police are coming. There's 200 people on the blockade. Everyone's scared. Can you say something? And so I just started talking into this megaphone about why I was there and the power of our collective action. And I don't know, I guess I've just never shut up since. Wow. You found your voice. <laughs> that was the beginning for me. I ended up becoming the blockade coordinator that summer. Over 10,000 people came to the protests. At the time, it was the largest protest in Canadian history. Wow. 857 people were arrested, and I was charged with 857 criminal counts of aiding and abetting. Whoa. And I faced six years in jail. I was 23 years old. And just a year before, you were an academic, and you just popped over to see what was going on. Yeah. So that was my beginning. Yeah. I ended up going to jail, but for a very short time. And a group of really well-known Canadian lawyers represented me unexpectedly, thank goodness, because they saw <laughs> me on the news. And we countered the charges based on the idea that everyone has a right to free speech. Everyone has a right to do civil disobedience. You can't aid and abet civil disobedience. I was making speeches, but those people were making their own hard personal choices. And we won. So I didn't go to jail, but that's just started my journey. And I ended up working within the environmental movement and I've been doing it ever since. So there was a divine call to be a defender 
and it sounds like a wonderful baptism um, and, and <laughs> way. Baptism by fire, yeah. I, that was the, was it the Cloquat Sound? Cloquat Sound, yeah, yeah, 1993. And then I went on to get hired by Greenpeace and Greenpeace International, and I worked with an amazing group of people to design the Great Bear Rainforest campaign. And in that campaign, because the government wasn't listening to the protests, we decided to follow the money. It wasn't called the Great Bear Rainforest back then, though. No, it was referred to on all the maps as the Mid-Coast Timber Supply Area. It was one of the mm. largest intact temperate rainforests in the world. And we renamed Timber it the Great area. Bear Rainforest and launched an international campaign calling on companies to stop making their newspapers and their lumber from this region. And I ended up negotiating with some of the largest companies in the world to cancel millions of dollars worth of contracts. and. Once that started happening, well, then the government was willing to talk to us. So, Do you think that changing the name made those negotiations easier? Because, I mean, like, imagine if the Great Barrier Reef was called the Pacific Fish Supply Area. Exactly. No, naming matters. Mm -hmm. Because, really, making social change is about, well, it's about money and votes. Mm -hmm. We have to influence our decision makers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get people in the halls of power that just want to do the right thing. Right. Most of the time, those people are stuck in, even if they're good people, they're stuck in bad systems. Mm -hmm. And in order to get them to do the right thing, you have to harness power. Power comes from people. Mm -hmm. So the vote end, bringing tons of people together. To bring tons of people together, you have to make the issue simple for them because they've got five minutes in between packing their kids' lunch boxes and getting ready for work the next day. And so the way we communicate these issues, how we can motivate people to engage in the issues is absolutely critical. I had an amazing experience and I wondered if you could relate to this. I spent a lot of time in those very forests over my years and spending a lot of time with the indigenous communities, particularly mm. the Simshian tribe and also those around Tofino. Wow. Um, the conflict between mining companies who want to try and prospect out on the islands there about cultural intervention which is the evidence of ancient indigenous practice living in those places. And if there's any evidence that's there, it is used as powerful defense against mm -hmm. any form of extraction, you know, oil, mining, mineral rights. I wondered how you're working with the indigenous communities with their narratives to work upon protecting the land there and whether that's something that, being there's such a strong indigenous voice in British Columbia, whether there are things that you could maybe share with us as a ways that we can project those narratives beyond outside of just British Columbia, but mm -hmm. internationally. That's such an important issue. I feel like, first of all, it's really important that we don't try and uh, harvest in some ways mm. or those voices, extract that knowledge, but instead lift up mm. those leaders and give them the opportunity to tell their own stories. And it's part of what I've been trying to do now with my work on the fossil fuel treaty. We've been meeting with indigenous nations from all over the world, from British Columbia, from across Canada, but also in the Amazon, throughout the United States, and talking to them about their own lived experience of extraction, whether it's logging or whether it's mining of oil or gas or coal, and what their vision is about what needs to happen and trying to learn from them, bring them together with others from around the world who share their vision. Because the fact is that the fossil fuel industry and the logging industry isolate us into mm. our individual battles. And yet they're often some of the same companies. 
there are certainly the same financial institutions. You know, you can draw a line between what's happening in the heart of the Amazon and the Ecuadorian rainforest or what's happening in British Columbia, probably to about three banks, to about five oil and gas companies. Mm. And so networking and bringing people together and sharing those stories are really important. But I also think true reconciliation and decolonization is about learning and really listening to the people who, who live on the land and whose traditional territories they are. I'll show you one story of what I mean. I, I spent two weeks in the heart of the Amazon, in the Ecuadorian Amazon, and I was sitting with a Quechua elder late at night, a shaman, and mm. you know, asking questions and trying to understand. And he turned to me and he said, through two interpreters, because he's speaking Quechua and then to the Spanish interpreter, mm -hmm. English interpreter, and he said, so I've been studying your society and I would like you to explain to me your um, concept of wealth. I understand it all surrounds this paper money that you've created. Mm. And it was a profound moment for me, sitting there trying to figure out how to answer that question, mm. you know, how to explain how so much of our decision-making in our society surrounds this paper money that we've created. <laughs> and I said, that's right. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you put it that way. Tell me, how do you define wealth? And he said, well, it's very simple. It's love, it's a healthy community, and it's having a living forest that provides us with our food and our water and our medicines. Those three things are wealth. And I'll never forget that moment because I realized I didn't just need to hear that to be reminded of what matters. The world needs to hear that. So we often talk about what's happening with indigenous peoples on their land as though they're victims and instead of actually lifting up that knowledge, lifting up that leadership mm. and trying to fight for them to be in the room. You know, a study came out while we were here at COP that there are twice as many oil lobbyists who have badges to be in these halls, walking these halls of negotiations, twice as many than all of the indigenous peoples in the world. Wow. And as long as we allow our systems to do that, to invite in to create the laws that are going to define our future, the people who will not design their own demise, mm. <laughs> instead of respecting the nations, the, the traditional owners and those who live on the land, um, then we have a problem. So design their own demise is a, a very powerful term. Mm. And you're designing the opposite, the way out, the alternative. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about what your vision of a more equitable, more just and more heart-centered world would look like. I think the critical thing is that we decentralize and distribute power in, in every sense of the word, whether that means our energy system or whether it means the power to make decisions. And what's fascinating is a lot of the solutions to the climate and ecological crisis that we're living in are actually decentralized systems. Mm -hmm. You know, the sun shines everywhere the wind blows everywhere and no one owns it mm. and that's why the big incumbents the fossil fuel companies fight it so hard mm. because they can own some infrastructure but anyone can put a solar panel on their roof mm. anyone can put a wind turbine up any community can own the rights to keep their lights on mm -hmm. and that's the system that we need to get to right now we not only have an ecological crisis and a climate crisis but we also have billions of people in energy poverty, literally, who are still in the dark. Mm -hmm. And the fossil fuel industry uses that to say, therefore, they should expand. Mm. They have to help turn the lights on in Africa. Mm -hmm. 
But as they do that, they literally are killing us. Mm. A Harvard study this year came out showing that one in five people on the planet die because of air pollution. One in five people. Yeah. Eight, eight million people a year because of three products, oil, gas, and coal. Yeah. And we have solutions to them now. Mm -hmm. So I envision a world that is cleaner, that is safer, where we've set up systems so that people can live and work uh, and play in a safe way in their own communities, that they can get around and, and that's accessible no matter what your income is, mm. and where we're prioritizing mm. the air we breathe and the water we drink and healthy food. You know, it almost seems absurd when you say it in that simple a way, but the fact is, that's not today what we prioritize. It's not yeah. what our elected officials are prioritizing. And ultimately, we elect them to defend the public good. Yeah. And what's the public good if it's not the air we breathe and the water we drink and healthy food for our kids? Do you think that's also about the stories we tell? Because we tell stories of centralizing. We tell stories of how do you get to the top? How do you win? How do you get opportunity, access to the most sort of transformational things that will be useful to you or show that you're doing well. And those are our aspirational stories. Then that just leads us, I mean, you know, even That's right. look, look at us here. We are people who fought to be able to talk to each other at this climate event where, you know, you have a special lanyard if you're allowed to get into the special zone. And, you know, we are products of our centralizing cultures and we're trying to do the right thing but yet we're trapped in this story of, of being the only people who get to do the thing how do we deconstruct that as storytellers within our communities and how do we change those narratives so that our focus is on health i feel like in part it's about celebrating values mm -hmm. not achievements yeah right mm. telling the stories of good works wherever they are we make participating in all of these issues so complex that people can't see their own place in it. Yeah. But we all have a place in it. We have to all have a place in it in this moment in history. Mm. It's not just the celebrity culture, but mm -hmm. it's also the consumer culture. Mm -hmm. It's like we have an underdeveloped citizens engagement muscle and an overdeveloped consumer muscle. Mm. You know, people go to the mall now as a pastime. We need to start thinking of ourselves as citizens and celebrating mm -hmm. all the acts, the values that are going to help us thrive. It's not surprising though, is it? Because even the news broadcast that helped the lawyers notice that you'd been arrested probably had commercial breaks between them and the social media platforms we're going to mention to the people we know that we're here doing this has adverts for stuff between it. Like the substrate of our storytelling is in selling things. And the celebrity culture, how do you get away from it? I yeah. think about it a lot in my work. The more profile my work gets, yeah. the more effective I am. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, I really want to be lifting up all of these voices and working with all these grassroots mm -hmm. leaders. And, you know, I did a TED talk recently and it's been massive yeah. for my work yeah. because I need decision makers to take me seriously right. in order to be able to have an influence on those decisions that are made. Yeah. If you represent the values of lifting others up, then how do you make yourself small while being useful? And how do you lift someone else up if no one cares about you in the first place so you can channel that influence to other people? It's so complicated. Yeah. And how do you decide? if you care about an issue, what to do. Yeah. You know, I, I think all the time about how lucky I am that every morning I get to do what keeps me up at night. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of young activists ask me that when I do public speeches and things like that. And I always say, follow your own juice. I call it in my last book, I call it the juice factor. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we're gonna do our best work mm -hmm. 
if we're doing what makes us feel good, yeah. I think policy is absolutely critical. And doing research and writing the 50-page policy briefs, yeah. I hate it. Like, it's just, it's exhausting. I, it Does drains like it? me. But there are. Yeah. No, I work with a ton of people who are policy experts, and they love juice. it. They just, you know, they get into all the details, and they want to sit, you know, alone at their desk and write these policy. It makes me feel like a withered plant, you know? So, okay, so what does that mean? What do I want to do? You know, some people think, okay, I'm an introvert and I'm an academic, but I got to get out there in the street. Well, first of all, I think we all should be marching in the street in some way. Right, right. Yeah. But we can you, actually hear people marching past. I know, yeah. right now. I know. I was just thinking <laughs> the that. Drums, the, the drums, the drums. But, but you also, you have to do what makes you comfortable and what makes you feel alive. And you have to work on the issues that are most important to mm. you. And that's where you'll do your best work. So that might be marching and holding a placard. It might be being the one to give a speech on the on the megaphone, but it also might be doing the research or organizing other people to do that. But I think the most important thing is that we all do something. Well, you it, started it, cooking. I started cooking, but there's no one role. And I think that's mm, what's really exactly. important. There's no one tactic. There's no one organization. We need all the tools in our tool belt right now. Mm. And I think it's like in nature, it's our diversity mm -hmm. of tactics and approaches that makes us strong. Mm. How do you stay strong? How do you re-energize yourself and stay in this fight? Partly I stay strong through staying really connected to the earth. I need to go for a walk on the beach or in the forest every couple of days at least and just remind myself why I do all of this. Mm -hmm. But also when I get really full of despair, I think about the next thing I'm going to do. And sometimes it's small. I just have to set a specific objective on one little campaign or one mm -hmm. little action. I think hope isn't something you have. I think it's something you create. And mm -hmm. doing this work and being with people who are also full of the same common purpose, that energizes me all the time. Mm -hmm. So mm. it comes from outside, you know, both from the living world and your living compatriots. Yeah. yeah. I do want to ask, as a woman who's taken to the forests, the old growth forests, what single thing the forest has taught you? That we're all connected and that we know so very, very little. I think mm. being in the temperate rainforest humbles me. And the more I learn about that forest, that trees communicate with each other underground through mycelium, that we can now see how strong a salmon run was a hundred years ago by looking at the rings of the trees because the nutrient levels reflect how much bears poo in the woods and they eat salmon. Like just so fascinating wow. to me how little we know and how interconnected and strong mm. those ecosystems are and it humbles and inspires me. So fascinating. That is amazing. If people are listening and want to support your work, specifically your work, how can they do that? Join us and make it your own. Mm -hmm. No one owns the idea of a fossil fuel treaty. It's something that the whole world needs and it's mm. growing fast. We have 101 Nobel laureates who have already joined, including the Dalai Lama over 2,000 scientists. Every day, more people take up the campaign and run it in their own communities, and it's so inspiring. So fossilfueltreaty.org, all the information that you need in order to join the treaty. And I also run an NGO called Stand.Earth, Standing for the Earth. And we run climate campaigns on shipping industry, on the fashion industry, on oil and gas projects, and join us there too. Oh, it's wonderful talking to yeah. you. 
so fun to talk to you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You create a force field of inspiring, sunlit, (laughs) green draped I was in those rainforests. Yeah. 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 Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) We could keep talking forever, but we should probably stop. (laughs) You have a world to defend as well. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. I have to say that I completely fell in love with Zephyra. Just an extraordinary woman. I felt very akin to her because she's Jewish. She grew up in the synagogues. And I felt that real sense of like that legacy, that ancient legacy of defense that was in her. And something else that happened to me that I would love to say, which is that on my last moments of being in Glasgow, as I was cycling to the train station to leave for the last time at about 6.10 in the morning, I was cycling past the Blue Zone. And in the half light, in this red long overcoat, I saw her Mm. marching towards the Blue Zone. And I stopped and I said, hi, separate. And I just got that last moment to say, thank you and good luck as she stormed into that building Hmm. to continue and i'll tell you it was one of the most i i actually wept when i said goodbye i'm feeling very emotional now thinking about what an extraordinary force she was Hmm. and is and what's wonderful is you might not have heard her name before i hadn't i didn't know her story but we would passed every day by people with stories like this Hmm. that we don't know and names that we don't know. And that I find encouraging. Sephora, we salute you. I didn't tell you that. No, I, I love th- it that you saved it for now. Thank you. <sighs> yeah, it was such a like, you know, I saw her in her absolute brilliance, just f- pushing through. Oh, it's just, it was an amazing moment. Hmm. Thank you very much to our guests today on this show, as well as all you lovely listeners. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, give us a rating. It'll cheer us up and encourage us. You can follow us on social media at SoHotPod. You can also follow me, Sam Lee, at Sam Lee Song. And you can follow me, can't you, Sam? At Tom Mustill. A huge thanks to Arctic Base Camp for providing home and food and sustenance while we were up in COP. Of course, special thanks to Carl Burkhardt and his team at One Earth, without whom we wouldn't have been able to do this series. Once again, One Earth is a philanthropic organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5C. Find out more at One Earth. So Hot Right Now was hosted by me, Tom Mustill. And me, Sam Lee. It was produced by Picture Zero Productions. And Pod Monkey. This episode was recorded by Jack Fillimore on the streets of Glasgow. And also in Soho Radio Studios in London. The series producer is Lindsay. Say hi, Lindsay. And the executive producers are Matt and Scott at Pod Monkey, And also the wonderful Burgess Haycock at Picture Zero.